Good morning. Welcome to another episode of Crime Over Coffee. We're your host. I'm Abby. And I'm Erica. Today, I'm going to be telling you guys about two unsolved murders. And today, I am going to be telling you about the coffee I'm drinking. And it's actually coffee this time and not an alcoholic beverage. You guys wow. can hear it. That's a first. It is the iced coffee, but the pack you can get at the store from Dunkin' Donuts that you make at home and you just pour it over ice. It's Interesting. really good. 10 out of 10 recommend. I won't do 10 out of 10. That's probably too much. 8 out of 10 recommend. And at the current moment in time, I actually don't have a drink, but a friend of mine is on her way and she's delivering me a hot vanilla latte from a local coffee shop. So grab yourself some coffee and let's dive on in. We will continue on with our content for this week's episode shortly, but first we wanted to take a moment to let you know about an opportunity to listen to even more Crime Over Coffee content. By signing up for our Patreon, you can receive ad-free episodes and additional content. To check out this opportunity and sign up for the Crime Over Coffee Patreon, visit www.patreon.com slash crimeovercoffeepod. Thank you again for all of your support. So today I'm going to be telling you guys about two unsolved murders. Neither of these are connected. However, there's not a whole lot of information surrounding either of them, but they both deserve attention as they are unsolved and spreading the word could bring some sort of closure to the families. So once again, no connection between the two. They're just two unsolved murders. The first one is about a 37-year-old mother named Karen Bodine who was living in Olympia, Washington, and Everybody described her as loving and creative and a great mother. She, at one point, had previously struggled with substance abuse. And so that was something that was kind of on people's radar. However, at the time of our story in January of 2007, Karen was doing better and was not struggling with substance abuse in the same way that she was before. On Sunday, January 21st, 2007, Karen was walking through the streets of Washington and a neighbor noticed her and called the police because the way that Karen was acting was a little abnormal for a person. She was walking around in the bitter cold and she wasn't wearing a coat. And there was also some other, must have been the way that she was walking. I couldn't find the exact things, but it was enough that the neighbor felt like she should call the police and get some sort of assistance for Karen because she was worried about her. When the police arrived, Karen talked with them and told them that she was completely fine and that she didn't need any assistance or anything. And the police officer ended up leaving after he felt like Karen had convinced him enough. So I'm going to assume that the officer didn't see any visible signs of intoxication or anything like that. And so the officer did leave. That's so tough because I mean, What can you really do at that point? It is really difficult because, yeah, there's, I mean, unless she's actively being aggressive or doing things that she shouldn't be doing out in public, there's not a whole lot that the officer can do. It's just kind of a formality and a a check-in to make sure that she's fine and that she's not going to hurt herself or others. 
So at the time, Karen didn't actually have a specific home address. Uh, She was staying with a friend of hers at the time because she'd been in a relationship with her boyfriend and there was an intense domestic dispute, an incident that had occurred where she ended up getting a protection order against him. And so she had kind of moved around a couple different places. And so at the time she was staying with a friend. So after she spoke with the police officer, she ended up going back to her friend's house and it's not exactly known what she did when she first arrived home. However, her friend was there and then some other friends were also present. And while they don't know exactly what they were doing on this day, they do know that previously drug use was pretty common with the group of people that she was hanging out with. Her friends remember seeing her around 3 a.m. and said that at that time, she ended up leaving the house on foot to go walk, but she never returned home and she was never seen again by any of her friends. The next morning, January 23rd, 2007, Karen's body was found at the entrance of a gravel pit in Rochester, Washington, about 30 miles from her home. When they found her body, she was no longer clothed. They said that she was found in an unusual position, but they did not believe that she had been sexually assaulted. I mean, 30 miles is a pretty substantial amount to cover if you're on foot. I'm guessing they're kind of suspecting foul play at this point. Yes. So when they discover the body, they are able to determine pretty quickly that she was strangled from the Mm. bruising and the marks on her body. They also start asking around, and one of the witnesses that saw that or that was around this area said that they had seen a small brown 1980s Datsun with a lighter colored camper shell around 7.50 a.m. at the gravel road entrance where the body was found. Mm. So, investigators obviously wanted to know more information about that. They, like I said, didn't believe any sort of sexual assault had occurred, but they think that the way that the her body was placed was more a way of the killer trying to have some sort of shock value for the people that found him. Like it, it felt more like a mind game than anything. When police found her body, they did find a ligature around her neck. And so they pulled multiple DNA profiles on the ligature and sent it off for testing. However, like I said, this occurred in 2007. And since 2007, none of the DNA testing evidence or results have been shared with the public to this day. Which could be a good thing because maybe they kind of have an idea of where they're trying to look. I think that they do because law enforcement officers said that they're hoping advancements in DNA technology will help solidify some of their stuff and result in more answers. So it leads me to believe, like you said, they have a direction that they're going with somebody, but they just don't have enough evidence to convict at this moment. And I'm assuming that would be why they're not releasing information. Police do believe that more than one person was involved in the murder of Karen Bodine. Do you know what would lead them to believe that? Unless they have got two DNA profiles, perhaps? I That's what I wonder is if there's two DNA profiles. I don't see anything. I don't know if they're assuming that there was a driver of the vehicle and then a second person to help subdue Karen, if that's kind of their thought process, or if there are more than one DNA profiles found on that. There is a website that you can go to that Karen's family runs that's called KarenBodine.com, K-A-R-E-N-B-O-D-I-N-E.com, and that'll be linked in our sources as well. But they do have different merchandise that you can buy on their website that's to try to get the word out there. And 100% of the proceeds from 
any of the merchandise sold on the site goes to solving her cold case. So a couple of things that they have, they have a drawstring bag, they have a grocery bag, they have a coffee mug, they have sweatshirts, and they have crewnecks. And if you go to that site, it'll tell you prices and everything. If you would like to donate without purchasing anything, you can also go through their website to do that. Like I said, all of the donations and money that they earn goes towards billboards and flyers and private investigators and just spreading the word. But you can also send money uh, through Venmo to Carly Bodine, which is one of Karen's daughters. Anyone with information regarding Karen's case is encouraged to contact Detective Mickey Hamilton at the Thurston County Sheriff's Office by calling 360-786-5500. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And the second unsolved murder that we're going to be talking about today is that of Terry Leanne Strickland, who went by Missy. Missy was a 45-year-old mother of three daughters who was married to a man named Brandon Bevers. Missy lived with her family in Red Oak, Texas. And previously, she had been a teacher who worked with students who had special needs. However, after her their first child was born, she decided that she wanted to be a stay-at-home mom. And so she ended up leaving her job working in special education and did just that. At the time of our story in 2016, Missy was now teaching boot camp fitness classes at a church in Midlothian, Texas. And she'd been doing this for a little while now. On April 19th, 2016, she arrived at the church around 4.30 in the morning to start working and prepare for the fitness class that she'd be teaching that day. At 5 a.m., students started to walk in, and when they arrived, they ended up finding Missy's body. The first person to walk in and find her immediately called 911 before other people arrived, so there was very little little tampering with evidence or anything like that. Police are very immediately contacted. When police arrived, they were able to determine that she had been murdered. There were puncture wounds to her head and her chest. It has not been released exactly what weapon was used, but they believe that it was possibly consistent with a hammer or something like a mallet. There was no signs of a robbery. Missy's wedding ring was still there. Her purse was still there. Everything in the church was still there. So police believe that it was solely a murder and there was no other intent behind it. I feel like that makes sense because of where it was. You know, you wouldn't think of, it's like it was in an alley or something. Like she was in a building that she was that she frequented so i would guess that it was someone who knew she would be there at that time correct she had a little bit before she had arrived at the church this also might have been right before she had left her house she had made a facebook post saying quote if it's raining we're still training end quote and so police were able to determine you know the class was officially on she was mm-hmm. still in the mood to to do this they were able to and they were also able to determine kind of a better idea of timeline on everything. Missy, like I said, arrived at the church and went inside. However, she did not know that when she arrived, there was already somebody in the church. And security cameras from the church can see this person. 
enter about 3.50 in the morning. So they got there about 40 minutes before Missy had arrived. That's even sketchier. Oh, yeah. And to add to that, this person is wearing tactical police gear. Oh, God. But it's not official. And police do not believe that the police gear that the individual was wearing was official. But it looked like somebody that worked for SWAT. So was there anybody in the church that worked for something tactical like this that they could have looked at? But also, I don't know that they would have because they didn't believe that it was real tactical gear. Like, it was like a costume. Oh, I get you. When police start looking through the surveillance footage, they see that the individual had entered the church, like I said, about 3.50, and they see that he'd been, like, vandalizing the church the entire time that he was waiting for Missy. They also said that the guy or, or the individual walked a little differently. So it was it was a very distinctive walk. So they thought that because of that, they were going to be able to figure out who it was. So police actually released the surveillance footage of the individual to see if anybody can identify this person based on their walk. This sounds like the Delphi. That's my first thought when I was mm-hmm. looking into it as well. I think that's fair, though, because, you know, some people do have such a specific walk that's identifiable. And it sounds like, in theory, it would have been someone in the community. So seems like a good move. Yeah, absolutely. The FBI end up calling in a forensic podiatrist named Dr. Michael Nirenberg. And he comes in specifically to study the walk of this individual. And to like, he's able to determine if it, like, if he's walking that way because of a toe or like the heel of his foot, like, And I thought that was so cool. I never really thought about the fact that that's how they're analyzing that stuff. And I can't say that I knew they did this in real life. I had a hunch, but I know about that because um, if any of you out there watch Bones, there is this whole thing between Brennan and a forensic podiatrist who is Canadian. And it's a great storyline. It's really funny. But I remember seeing that and thinking, huh, what an interesting specific thing. But it makes sense. Just like they it have the forensic sense. dental people and hair and all of that. It's just, it's so crazy to me that somebody can watch a video and be like, oh yeah, that person's walking that way because their left toe's broken. <laughs> like something like that. So he comes in, he looks at it and he estimates that the individual is about five foot eight with that being from the floor to the top of their headwear. They also determine, he also determines that his feet are turned outward, but more predominantly on the right foot. And Dr. Michael Nirenberg also says it's possible that the person is walking that way due to some sort of temporary condition and not like a permanent condition. That he said that the left toe is slightly out and that the right toe is significantly out. But the unfortunate news with this, you know, he's got all this information, but Dr. Nirenberg states that a large number of the population has that. Oh. So it's not super abnormal to see some of that stuff. He also said that the gait was so average that he couldn't even determine if the killer was a male or a female. Oh, so that was unhelpful. It was, I, I, but it's so unfortunate because he comes in, he's like, okay, well, we can tell that the left toe's like this and the right toe's like this. And he's about this, like, he can tell all this stuff. And then he comes in, he's like, but I don't actually have any solidifying evidence that points to one specific person. It is going to narrow it down a little bit, but we still don't even have a gender or an idea of what to be looking for. 
When police were looking at surveillance footage, they can tell that the suspect used a pry bar to smash the glass and then open a side door at the church, and that's how they got in. The church didn't have any sort of an alarm, and the outside surveillance cameras, believe it or not, were not working. So they didn't have any idea how long they'd been outside the building. They only knew when they entered the building. I'm just still happy that we had inside working security cameras. So they could see him enter and then see her enter and then see him leave later? Yes, but they couldn't tell like vehicle or anything like that based on any surveillance footage from the church. They did, however, look at a nearby business and there was some surveillance footage that showed a vehicle that showed up a couple hours before Misty was killed. And the vehicle was described as 2010 to 2012 Nissan Altima or a 2010 to 2012 Infiniti G37. So they also said that the vehicle can be seen driving around the church a couple times, turning its lights on and off. And then they parked and then they finally left. It's suspicious. It's almost like they were kind of staking out the situation. Mm -hmm. They did obviously investigate her husband, Brandon, because, you know, initially husbands are always slightly suspicious in these situations or significant others in general. They also checked with her father and mother-in-law because a few days after Missy was murdered, her father-in-law brought a blood-soaked shirt to a dry cleaner in Midlothian. And when he got there, he told them, he's like, a family dog passed away because another dog attacked it. And the blood on the shirt is is from this dog, I promise. Like, they thought it was super suspicious. So police are like, we, we really need to check into this. So they do check into it. And they do determine that it was not human blood that was on the shirt. And so at this point, they're able to pretty much rule out everybody like close to her in her life, like family members. So... It does leave the question, you know, if there it could have been somebody else from the church, because like we said, they knew about what time she would arrive. They had sort of an idea. They were able to make it around the church. They did have to break in, but it leaves that question. And they would know that there was no alarm, perhaps. Probably. They potentially could have known that the outside security cameras were not working. I mean, there's a lot of things that they could have known if they were involved in the church or if they knew Missy well enough. Throughout the years, police have received thousands of tips, especially after they released the video footage of the individual inside the building. There is currently a $50,000 reward for anyone who comes forward with information that leads to an arrest regarding the murder of Missy Bevers. If you have any information, you can contact the Ellis County Crime Stoppers at 972-937-7297. Thanks to listening to this week's episode of Crime Over Coffee. You can find us on Instagram at Crime Over Coffee or on Facebook at Crime Over Coffee Podcast, where all of our photo and video content for each episode can be found. You can also email us your thoughts and case suggestions at crimeovercoffeepod at outlook.com. All of our sources can be found in the show notes for each episode. If you would like, you can support us by going to anchor.fm slash crimeovercoffee. You can also support us by recommending us to friends and family, giving us a good review on Apple Podcasts, or subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.